Okay. Um, tonight, uh, we're going to cover a lot of territories, so uh, I want to, in the notes that you, in the handouts, we're going to go through 12, page 12, page 13, page 14, page 15, and that exercise. And I'd like to do it in the following way. Uh, I want to, first, I want to emphasize the link between modern versions of paganism and ancient versions of paganism. We want to establish that linkage. Then we want to do exercise 1.3. I want to go over that exercise, um, that question, uh, the first question of that exercise. And we're going to go through the New Testament scriptures that we listed. And then we want to go to the three strategies that Christians over the years have used to try to deal with the problems brought on by the conflict between Genesis and the modern world. All right, let's uh, begin with just a review. I want to review these four points uh, because if you don't have these in your notes from last time, you, you should, should have them in there somewhere. These four points sort of quickly summarize where we've come from. The first thing that we said is that all people work out from a worldview. Everybody brings a worldview to the table. Everybody has a presupposition. And you can't avoid it. Everybody breathes, everybody walks, uh, and everybody has worldviews. And it's foolish to think that there's any such thing as a person without a worldview. The second thing we said is that you can sometimes, not always, but you can sometimes discover a person's worldview by listening for key words in conversation. And those key words are what we call the universals. Whenever you see people using all, always, never, should, ought, true, false, right, wrong, those words will often betray their, their worldview because they're universals. Third thing that we've said is that regardless of whatever negative claims a worldview makes, it always makes at least one positive claim for itself. Examples. Relativism. Everything is relative. What that is, an attempt to destroy the idea that there are universals. Everything is relative. The problem is, that statement itself is a universal. So you don't escape the universals by articulating something. All you do is change them. You exchange them. You change the location. You change the kind. But you don't get rid of them. Another example uh, that's very contemporary is modern, postmodern deconstructionism in literature. And you read some of these guys and, and, and girls who write, and they insist that literature has to be deconstructed, and it has to be refined so you get what really was going on, <laughs> because the, la the language itself is, is basically relative to the cultural situation which was written. Of course, the fallacy in that approach is quite simple and straightforward, and that is that the deconstructions themselves don't want you to deconstruct them. And, of course, the third thing pertinent to our topic at hand is the, 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 total, the totality of a cosmic evolution, that all things are evolving. Well, if all things are literally evolving, then the statement all things are evolving itself is evolving. 
So you can't, you can't escape this. So no matter how many destructive statements a worldview has, it always makes at least one positive assertion of old-fashioned truth. Old-fashioned absolutes are always embedded in a worldview. And then finally we stated uh, last time and the time before is therefore, conclusion, there is no such thing as neutralism. What we have is toleration. We can be gracious. We can be courteous. We can be tolerant. But the call for neutrality is a fake statement because we showed how neutrality itself is not neutral. All right, we've gone through, and I think we've belabored the point uh, from time, uh, since we started, by going back, looking at some of the ancient pagan texts, and comparing them with the Bible, and seeing that we're back to only two fundamentally different worldviews. And we tried to, um, tried to emphasize that there are many brands and varieties of this. But when it comes down to the final analysis, all views outside of the Bible, all views outside of the Bible, believe in this, in this approach. And we've sem so sort of summarized, we've added one thing. This is a diagram made up back in the spring, so it doesn't have what I've emphasized in the notes that you have. In the notes that you have, I emphasize this, the continuity of being, and chance. Those are the two key components. Very practically, let me review again what these two ideas are so that they don't seem sound so abstract and philosophical. Chance, a good picture for your mind of chance, is think about that pagan uh, text we, we studied, Numa Elish. Think about that text and think about how the gods and goddesses war with each other to bring into existence the universe. How the gods and goddesses war with each other to cause history to move forward. That is a picture of chance and chaos because the point is that tomorrow, you can't ever forecast the, the, the result of the gods' battles tomorrow. And that was always the dilemma of paganism, always has been the dilemma of paganism. It never can stabilize because it never knows what's going to happen tomorrow because by definition tomorrow is unknown. We don't know what the new fight is going to be all about. But if you, if you take that idea of those warring gods, think of it, have you all been serving on a committee with some place? Can you imagine a committee without a chairman? And you have all people on this committee where everybody has their own say. Well, that's chaos. That's chance. That's the, the pagan idea of how the universe is run. But if you compare the scripture in 1 Kings 22 and Job 1, those passages, you see the Lord who is talking to other beings, less than himself, however, not his equals, less than himself, angels, you'll see him calmly declaring what will take place. There's no discussion, even between Satan and the Lord, about what is going to take place. When God says something is going to take place in Job chapter 1, you can read it for yourself in the text, he says, you will do this and you will not do that. And Satan has no real say about it. And that's what we mean by the opposite. That is a fundamental idea that we go back to again and again. That on this side you have chance, on this side you have personal sovereignty. If you don't grasp that, you, you cannot really come to know the God of the Bible. That's fundamental. 
Then the second idea, which we have portrayed there, is the continuity of being versus the creator-creature distinction. We'll, we'll get more and more into that. But basically what we're saying is on the right side of that diagram, what we mean by continuity of being is this, that there may be gods and goddesses. There may even be a god, G-O-D. But the idea is that he is, differs from us only on a scale. In other words, think of IQ. Uh, he has greater IQ than we do. We have less IQ than he does, but he and us are connected by a scale, a gradation, like a spectrum difference. And this has always been part and parcel of pagan, pagan position. And so God, if he exists in this form, himself is surrounded by the same mystery we are surrounded by. You know, he's bigger, he's more powerful, he's smarter, but in the end, he too shares the same environment we do. That's the continuity of being idea. Now, over against that idea, the Bible throws that idea out completely at a very, very fundamental level. The Bible totally disagrees with that. The Bible comes smashing against this whole concept of paganism right here. The Bible says that there is a creator and a creation, and you cannot bridge them. They cannot be bridged. In no way can the creature ever become the creator. So, there's that fundamental distinction. Now we come, if you'll turn in your notes to page 12, we want to come now to the um, statement about this linkage. And last time I showed some quotes, and you have the handouts from last time with, with the quote, more of the quotes in them. Um, but we want to review these because I want you to be convinced that this is not something I'm inventing up here. And this is well known by scholars who have studied this. This is not, you know, Fellowship Chapel's own little critique on the world here. This has been known for centuries. The point is that that ancient belief, the continuity of being, the chain of being idea, has come forward in time and colors completely the ideas of our modern world. In fact, what we're saying is that what we call cosmic evolution, the evolution of all things in the universe, is nothing but an outgrowth of that old pagan idea. It's expressed mathematically. I mean, I can express it with slick equations. Slick equations. But if you're smart and shrewd and you know your mathematics, you know that mathematics is a language that describes ideas. So it's not the fact that I have an equation. It's the question is, what is the equation describing? And in evolutionary terminology, it is describing this. And here's some people that know what they're doing. I mean, this, for example, that first quote happens to be the man who edited the volume that was done at the centennial celebrations of Darwin's writings <coughs> at the University of Chicago. And what does he say? Far Eastern philosophers thought of creation in evolutionary terms, a belief in an inherent Notice the word, an inherent continuity of all creation, and notice how the sentence ends, and, notice the last clause in the sentence, and, and second, a reference to the merging of one species into another. The merging of one species into another. It's exactly what evolution is. And what is he saying? Far Eastern philosophers thought of that centuries before Darwin. You see, this is not new with Darwin. The way we are taught in schools is they love to present it like this is a brand new idea. Oh, this is modern science. 
It isn't modern science, it's ancient philosophy in a new guise. Notice on page 12, the first quote I have there that begins with Lauren Isley. He is a modern historian of science, well-known person. And Isley says, right frankly, all that the chain of being actually needed to become a full-fledged evolutionary theory was the introduction into it of the conception of time and vast quantities added to mutability of form. And underline that word, mutability of form. That's part and parcel of the continuity of being. You can mutate from one level to the other. Mutability of form. The seed of evolution lay buried in this traditional metaphysic, which indeed prepared the Western mind for its acceptance. And the reason Isley's dealing with this is the way many intellectuals are dealing with why in the 19th century was Darwin so quickly adopted by Christians. You know who the people were that propounded and promoted Darwin in the Anglo-Saxon world? It was the Christian church. You know, come on. And now in the 20th century, suddenly we realize, oops, we made a big mistake in the 19th century. Why did we do that? It wasn't the pagans, because they weren't in power in the 19th century England. It was supposedly Victorian Christians that did all this stuff. And they just bought it hook, line, and sinker. And the question is, well, what prepared them to accept this? Why did they become suckers for this idea? And that's what Laura Nicely's trying to deal with. Okay. So, that's the linkage. I just want you to see that scholars admit that there is a linkage going on between ancient paganism and modern paganism. That it isn't, science really isn't involved in this debate. It's philosophy that's involved. The only problem is, most people, and I was trained in science and math, the average engineer doesn't take one course in philosophy. And he doesn't know what he's doing in a lot of these areas. And so you get involved with an equation, you get involved in chemistry, you get involved in physics, and you get all fixed because there's so much to learn in each one of these disciplines. You get just buried with stuff, inundated. You don't have time to back off and think, wait a minute, what is going on here? So you really don't get involved. And there are thousands of people in the technical professions today that haven't got a clue to what goes on philosophically. If the presupposition walked up and shook their hand, they couldn't see it. Because they're not taught to think that way. Very rarely in the school system are we ever taught to think about what's the real background of this idea. I mean, when was the last time you heard that in the classroom? Okay. So now we want to come to the exercise. I had a question. If you turn over to page 16, one of the first questions we asked was that question where Johnny comes home and he's talking about believing in evolution in Jesus. And I listed a set of New Testament quotes. Now, I want to go through some of those, but I want to start in Galatians chapter 4. But what, what, here's the purpose behind question, question 1 there. It's not just to answer the question. It's to expose you to a method. A method of studying Genesis. And here's, here's the technique. And you might want to just scratch this down the margin somewhere. Because I'm going to point this out. I'm, I've already done it to you twice. Remember back when, uh, about two weeks ago, when we dealt with that Enuma Elish epic? What did I say that we should do before we start studying? I said, before you read the epic, what do you do first? You say to yourself, wait a minute. On the basis of the scripture I already know, what do I know about that epic? Before I even read it. I know that it must be originated out of the sons of Noah. 
No other founder of the civilizations we know it. If that's the case, then whoever wrote Enuma Elish, his grandparents or their great-grandparents were exposed to Noahic tradition of Genesis 1 to 11. So we know that. And then I said, when I got to page 8, I said, but watch what happens to the secular scholar. Because he first believes in evolution, he starts from a different place than you would start. He starts reading Enuma Elish as though it's a pagan piece of literature out of the milieu of gradually evolving man. Out of the fertile crescent, we have this arising of civilization. And this is just the evolutionary premise. So you have two people taking the same text. One starts with one worldview, one starts with the other, and obviously we're in collision. Because the worldview affects us everywhere. This neutrality is a bunch of baloney. Nobody is neutral. So I want to show you how this starts again. Let's turn to Galatians 4, because why we're here is we want to ask a fundamental question about Genesis, believe it or not. Not Galatians, though we're going to Galatians, we're not talking about Galatians. Here's the question. How did New Testament Christians interpret the Old Testament? That's a simple question. How did the New Testament Christians themselves interpret the Old Testament? How did the apostles interpret the Old Testament? How did Jesus interpret the Old Testament? Don't you think that might give us some clues? Here we are, 20 centuries later, trying to interpret Genesis. Now, why don't we just say to ourselves, let's think back and get some controls on how we are to interpret the text. And we get the controls out of how the apostles that wrote the New Testament interpreted the text. That's what we're doing here. So in Galatians 4, verses 24 through 31, I'm showing you a rare passage in the New Testament in which the apostle deliberately takes an allegorical approach to the Old Testament. I want to, before we get to the literal, I want you to see how they do it. You see what's happening? Galatians 4, 24. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and it corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with the children. Now, clearly, he, in verse 22, he's just got through telling you the story of Abraham out of the Genesis text. Now, in verse 24, he expands his understanding of that story by means of an allegory. But what I want you to see is, he tells you that's what he's doing. You see that? He tells you, he announces it openly. I am allegorically interpreting the text at this point, folks. Watch me. That's what he's saying. Okay. That's how it looks when the New Testament authors interpret texts allegorically. Now come over to Matthew 19, to the, when Jesus is using Genesis. And let's see if Jesus tells us he's using it allegorically. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. This is the uh, one that we had in an earlier exercise. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the chapter, but we're coming back to it because, once again, it's a model. It's a model for how the church interpreted Genesis historically. Jesus said in verse 4, remember he's dealing with divorce, Have you not read, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, those of you who have a little study Bible will note that that's a quote. 
somewhere in your margin of your study Bible, you should have a little footnote or a little letter or a number. Trace that letter or number out to the margin and find where that is coming from. Where in verse 4 is, is that quoted from in Genesis? Anybody? Chapter? Chapter 1. Okay, next, let's go to verse 5. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Second quote from Genesis. And where is that one taken from? Chapter 2. Now, in either case, do you notice as you examine verse 4 and 5, do you see anywhere in the text that Jesus is hinting that he's just allegorically interpreting it? And what would lead you to believe that he's far from allegorically interpreting? He's literally doing it, and he has to literally interpret it because of the application at hand. His argument is divorce is not the original design, and he's going back to interpret what the original design was, and it's therefore a literal couple. It can't be an allegorical couple. It's got to be a literal couple. So, this is the method Jesus used. See, Jesus didn't have all the PhDs that modern theologians have, and he really didn't know that you should approach this allegorically. Now, let's look at some other texts. Let's turn to Matthew 23:35. Matthew 23:35. This is a little incident, little incidental remark, just a clause. But what does it show how in Jesus view of, the, of Genesis? He, he talks about Jerusalem, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, Zechariah was a historical person. Are we going to argue that Abel is just a fantasy of early Genesis that we can't take literally? Is that Jesus' view? Or is Jesus taking Abel as a historical person on the same scale as Zechariah? Of course he is. And you could go on and on and on tonight, and I gave you plenty of stuff. I want you to turn over to 1 Timothy 2, though. That's a classic. This one is really hard to get around with. 1 Timothy 2. Here's Paul. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 13, the context of the discussion this time is not divorce. It's the role of gender in society. And the question is, what is the model for gender role? So guess where Paul goes? He goes to the Old Testament. Why do you suppose he goes to the Old Testament for a model for gender role? What do we say in the first of the first chapter? We said that if you want meaning, fundamental meaning of anything, where do you go? You go to origins because that's where the meaning starts. So Paul comes back to origins, he comes back to Genesis, and notice in verse 13, it was Adam who first created and then Eve. What chapter material specifically is he using? Chapter 1 or chapter 2 of Genesis? Where in the text do you learn that Eve was created after Adam? Genesis 2. And then it says, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. 
What chapter in Genesis does that come from? Chapter 3. Ah, so now we've got chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, all interpreted literally by Jesus and Paul. Okay, I think enough said. The point is that we have established that the historic way of approaching Genesis text was to treat it as history, not a poetic allegory, like the modern theologian tries to ha have us do. Well, this has obviously created a problem, so if you turn over to page 13 in your notes, in the handout, you'll see that there were three strategies that the church has tried to use to deal with the, with the tension. Now, I might just point out what is the tension going on. Um, why do we have to have a big strategy session? Well, here's why. If we start with a Genesis text and interpret it literally, here's our problem. If we are thinking people in the modern 20th century. Now, let me go through this list. Here's the contrast in characteristics. These are some I could expand. Evolution, Genesis. Not a figment of my imagination. This is just the factual material. One starts with gas and one starts with God. That's how we begin. Next, we have hot condensing matter. We have a cool liquid water. We have sun, stars, before life on earth. In Genesis, we have the sun, stars, after life is made on earth. That's pretty heavy stuff. And it doesn't require a rocket scientist to see we've got a little problem here. Life evolves in the sea. Genesis has life created on land. Birds evolve with mammals after fish. Birds created with fish before mammals. Man evolves from mammals. Man created directly from the earth and the woman indirectly from man. Try that one on. Explain that one by natural selection. Rain occurs millions of years before man. Rain doesn't occur until after man is created. This is crucial right here. If you don't get anything of this list, copy these two down. Because we're going to come back and revisit this again and again and again. Evolutionary processes continue today. The process of evolution is still continuing today. If I am a scientist and I'm doing measurements, I'm measuring a process. I measure rates and changes and decay rates today. And I say they are the same and they go back to ancient times. The evolutionary processes continue to this very hour. In the Bible, and I want you to see this, turn to Genesis 2 at the end of those six days. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at the seventh day. Verse 2. Well, look at verse 1, 2, and 3. 
of chapter 2. Count how many times you see the verb in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3 for complete. Finish. Or however your translation reads. Count how many times. Look at verse 1 first. Okay? Thus the heavens and the earth were completed. First occurrence of the verb complete. Verse 2. By the seventh day God completed. Second time the verb occurs. Which he had done. And he rested. So there's another word that implies uh, completion. Also the verb had done. The work which he had done. It's over. And he rested. From all the work which he had done. Had done the past perfect of tense. It's finished. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and had made. So we come now to a very very fundamental thing. Evolutionary processes continue today in this worldview. In the Genesis text, whatever processes were used were turned off at the end. Of the sixth day. There's a difference. And few readers have there been that pick up on this obvious difference. The two worldviews are reporting two different ideas of processes. One has the processes continuing, the other has the processes turned off. And this has powerful implications about how you interpret data. And of course, down here, fundamental unity of life differing in degree. In the evolutionary worldview, different areas of life, cats, mice, dogs, pets, rocks, differ in degree. All have protons, all have electrons. They're just arranged differently. Life is just a different categories of arrangements, but fundamentally it's the same thing, electrons and protons. In Genesis, we have fundamental differences in kind. One, differences in degree. In Genesis, differences in kind. Animals reproduce after their kind. Plants' life reproduces after its kind. And there's a reason for that. That little point there is not just a little isolated detail. If, if those verses in that exercise, um, exercise 1.3, if you look at the list of verses in that question 1, one of the verses you'll see is from 1 Corinthians 15. If you had time to look at 1 Corinthians 15, you would have quickly noticed how this little characteristic is being used by Paul to explain the resurrection. Paul uses that precise point that there are fundamental differences in kind to dramatize, describe, and reveal what resurrection is all about. All right? Another thing, which we'll get into later on, is in the evolutionary worldview, death is normal. Sorrow is normal. Tears and pain are normal. They're adjuncts of mere existence. In the Bible, God created everything very good and death was introduced later, so death becomes abnormal. Death is something that came in after creation. Evolution, in fact, uses death to bring about life. In the Bible, we have life, and then it descends into death. So I think by going through these differences, you can see this was the tension that Christians faced, particularly in the 19th century. And obviously, the more they began to look at this, the more they began to say, whoa, we got a problem here. What are we going to do about it? So the first strategy that was invented 
was what I call the capitulation strategy. That's on your notes on page 13. Just a couple of paragraphs there. And we're speaking there primarily of the liberal church who had already drifted away theologically from their moorings, so they had no problem in simply wholesale capitulating to, to evolution in every way. And what they did, if you look at that second paragraph, one of the neat things that they, they did, they used, and here again I'm going to model for you something, Remember page six, I model for you. When you read Anuma Elish, what do you do first? You ask yourself as a Christian, what do I already know about the text before I start reading Anuma Elish? And I said that when the evolutionary scholar approaches Anuma Elish, what does he do? He knows what his evolutionary worldview tells him to look for, and he comes to the table with that all formulated, and then he works the material of Anuma Elish. Now we come to the same thing that was tried with what we call, and here's a technical term for those of you who get in school systems, higher criticism. Higher criticism is trying to explain the Bible in terms of unbelief. It is trying to explain the generation of these ideas without reference to a verbally revealing God. Trying to interpret the Bible, in other words, in, in, a, in a framework of paganism. And so they would turn to things, and we will turn now to Genesis 2, because it turns out that at least in three schools in Harford County, this is being taught. So we want to be sure that all Christians are forewarned and forearmed about Genesis chapter 2. One of the classic cases of a higher critical assault on the text, the validity of the text, is found right here in chapter 2. It comes, you can hear it and feel it coming when you hear your instructor saying, well, in the Bible there are multiple accounts of creation. And in particularly there are two accounts of creation. There's one account in Genesis 1 and there's a completely different account in Genesis 2. And usually a lot of naive Christian students sit there in the class and go, oh, uh-oh, there are contradictions in the Bible? And because they're sensitive enough, they think rationally, they think, wait a minute, I can't have truth here if I've got a contradiction. So, the liberals would, would do these things, and let me show you what they do. Turn to verse 9 in chapter 2, and also, simultaneously verse 9, look at verse 19. 9 and 19 in Genesis chapter 2. What they do is they get the students into a mode where they say, see, now let me prove to you there's a contradiction in this little sacred Bible of you fundies. And the idea is that in Genesis 1, which came first? Plants, animals, or man? Remember from the days? Plants, right? Then what came first? Second. Animals. And what came third? Man. But now look at what happens here. In verse 9, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow. That's fine. Plants. Then it describes about the river. Then, verse 15, we have man mentioned. Lord commanded the man, verse 16. And the Lord said, blah, 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 blah. The Bodice, verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. Then, verse 19, here's the clicker. In verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And the instructor joyously and proudly and confidently pronounces, See, I told you. Here's the contradiction. 
In Genesis 1, animals first, then men, and here you've got a clear case of man and then animals. Contradiction. Two different accounts here. Well, there's a problem with how you interpret this. Let me, let me, let me go backwards a minute. When you interpret literature, any kind of literature, you do it all the time when you get a letter. When you read a piece of literature, what, do you, what is your first approximation when you come to any text? You inter interpret it this way, don't you? That if a guy took this time, or a girl took this time to write, presumably they meant to communicate to me something. It's not just nonsense. So if somebody wrote the text, give the guy the benefit of the doubt that he probably intended to mean something coherent. So you don't start your interpretation of a piece of literature trying to rip it to shreds. You start your interpretation presuming that the author probably meant to communicate something coherent. That's why we write. That's why we talk. Now, in this case, we have a style of writing. And we are all acquainted with this who have ever gone out to the front lawn and picked up our morning newspaper. We call it journalistic style in the West, in the modern sense, journalistic style. Now, when you read a news story, when you write a news story, you read a news story and go down the, 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 any, any news story, it records events, doesn't it, in time. Does a journalistic style start with a headline and give you chronological event? Think about it when you read a news story. Or do the journalist, when he writes to you, summarize in the first paragraph what is going on, goes back to details, summarizes, maybe picks another theme, summarizes that, hops over here and does another theme? Ever see that style done? Now, does that mean that AP and UPI news writers have contradictions in their news stories? Or is it stylistic? So, the conservatives have also answered this question that really this is a stylistic question. I'm going to prove it to you because I'm going to show you where it occurs elsewhere in the Bible. What they do is they say that we have in Genesis 2.9, let's review so we catch the principle. We have in Genesis 2.9 and... God made animals. We'll just put, summarize the idea there. Okay? Back here, he had man already created. And we have this sequence. We have an and, and we have a verb of perfective, a perfective type of verb, past action. So, it would normally be sequential. Yes, but not always. If you'll turn to Exodus chapter 4. We'll see an example of this, where it looks sequential grammatically, but then it's obvious in the text it's not. In Exodus 4, what does he do on the next day, the fifth day? What two groups? Birds and fish. Oh, isn't that an interesting pattern? And what does he do on the sixth day? Animals. Dry land. Man. Do you notice anything significant about this chart? Do you see a structure? What do you observe is happening? A, a, a structure that en encompasses all those six days. 
Anyone want to just, what is the pattern that you see here? Uh, on the left, yes. And here he creates, as it were, the room, and here he populates the room, the space. Here he creates the domain, here he populates the domain. God's work, God's work in that creation week was very structured. It's the work of an engineer. He creates domains and he populates domains. He creates the vast universe with energy, he localizes the energy in light bearers. This is clearly a significantly different structure than evolution. And this is why the days don't work by merely making them into long ages. Because if you try to make them into long ages, you're still out of sequence, aren't you? Think about evolution. Does any evolutionist in his right mind agree that the stars didn't come into existence until after the planet Earth was settled? I never read an evolutionist that believes that. The sequence is wrong. In the days, you can't jam, ram, and cram the Genesis text into an evolutionary mold, even if you do make the days long ages. And then there's one fundamentally mistake with the days becoming long ages, and that is everywhere in the Hebrew language where you have a cardinal or ordinal, that means a counting measure, whenever you have day X, Notice, after each day, look at the text in Genesis 1. Look at the end of the day's work. And what do you notice? Look at those notices. Verse 5, one day. Verse 8, literally it means day 2, and so forth. And it goes on the different days, okay? idea there is whenever you have days that are being used, any unit that is used for counting, in every other case in the Hebrew text, it means a literal unit of measure. You don't count by symbol symbolic, allegorical ages. You have a counting sequence. So there's a number of problems with that. And I just want to summarize by saying, why did the Christians try strategy number two? Why was there an accommodation to it? Let me read you a quote the professor of history at Dallas Theological Seminary who did an interesting research project where he went back into the 19th century and he took America's most famous theological quarterly called Bibliotheca Sacra, which is now run by Dallas Seminary, but in the 19th century it was not done by Dallas Seminary. It was a theological quarterly. And he went back in the old libraries and he dug out all these articles because what he was trying to find out was when Christians were writing in the 1850s about this problem, what views were they bringing up? And it's clear that they were bringing up the accommodation strategy. And here's what Dr. Hanner points out. He says that ultimately what happened is that they bought into the infallibility of the scientific speculations of their day. So write in your notes somewhere that the 19th century, in the 19th century it was universally accepted, even in evangelical circles, Conservative Protestant circles accepted that historical science, as it existed in 1850, was essentially infallible. Even though it was speculative, they didn't recognize it as being speculative. They thought of it as inherently right and would never be adjusted by future acquisition of data into anything that would conform to a traditional view of the Bible. 
So starting with that premise, you see what happened? I want you to see the, the logic of this. Starting from that presupposition of the infallibility of 1850-style science, they then went on to say, well, we've got to back up. We've got to make the Bible fit. And that's what led to these spinning accommodation strategies. And here's, here's what Dr. Hannah says. He points out in the, early, in the early 1830s and 1840s, they were friendly to science. They even, he even has a quote in here, which uh, copied out, it's, it's so good. In 1846, here's what one Christian wrote, Christian scholar, outstanding Christian scholar said. Natural revelation is the basis on which written revelation rests. Let me read that quote for you carefully. Listen to what... And this was, this was endemic to the whole Christian church. Natural revelation was seen as the basis of written revelation. You know what they're saying in that statement? They're saying that we begin with a scientific study of the world and then, after doing that, we interpret Scripture accordingly. That was the presupposition they operated with. That's the accommodation strategy. And what happened was, by the 1850s, when the tension got worse, because all of a sudden more people are adding millions of years now to time, the Christians start doing this number. They start backing up, backing up, backing up, backing up, reinterpret, reinterpret. And here's some of the gimmicks that they used. By the 1850s, Bibliotheca Sacra articles began to evidence the impact of uniformitarianism as certain aspects of astronomy, such as the argument from the speed of light. By the way, this is 1850. So when you encounter these ideas, they're not new. This is not something that happened in 1981. This is 1850. The argument from the speed of light and geology, the strata of rock formations in the fossil record, suggested a much older Earth. One clergyman confided, Moses seems to assign a comparatively brief period to the creation. Astronomy and geology assert a vast period. How shall they be reconciled? Mayers postulated three theories to explain the compatibility of geology and scripture. A gap theory in Genesis 1 of indefinite time followed by divine creation in six 24-hour days. A day-age-day theory of indefinite periods between 24-hour periods. And a day-age theory of indefinite periods. He opted for the third view, thus conceding an important bulwark of traditional scriptural interpretation, limited time. He said, we cannot bring the period of geologic ages within six to 8,000 years assumed and as taught by Moses. If the Mosaic record is, as we believe, reliable, we must admit an interpretation which will give the period the facts demanded. End quote. So this is what was going on over a hundred years ago. It's still going on in evangelical circles. That's why you can listen to Charles, uh, Dobson's radio program and he has Dr. Um, uh, Hugh Ross on doing the same thing. It's the same strategy of accommodation. Now in your notes, you'll see on page 15 as we close tonight, the last strategy. And that strategy we call the counterattack strategy. This is the one that's created a storm of controversy in the country. It was begun, oddly enough, by secular people. Men who were trained in the secular world. It didn't come out of, of Christian seminaries. I find this kind of intriguing. These guys were real Christians. But they were men trained in the sciences, and as Christians, they felt, hey, you know, we're not blind. We know there's a big conflict. And uh, one of them, in the middle paragraph, page 15, is most well-known. He's probably the father of the movement. I did my master's degree on all of his writings and the uh, subsequent reviews of his writings. Dr. Henry Morris, who was then head of civil engineering at VPI. His group of evangelical scientists chose to begin a new strategy. If the Bible could not be adjusted to fit evolution 
And if it was the Word of God, then the problem somehow must be with the scientific interpretation of data. Somewhere in its development, largely from within Protestant Reformation, science had taken a wrong turn. What had begun as a fruit of a Christian view of nature had strangely boomeranged back against the Bible. The new strategy was a stunning turnaround. 400 years before, the Reformation had firmly established the Bible as the authority in heavenly things, that is, in soteriology, salvation, Christology. Now the Bible was becoming the authority in earthly things, too. To prevent the data of the book of nature from being misinterpreted, the new strategy established controls from a, con from a comprehensive universal history built in the Bible. In other words, basically what these guys did and this, I, I remember this happening because I lived through this big split that happened in the early 60s. The argument was basically this, that 100 years, 200 years ha has shown us we can't make the two fit. So now we've got to come back to the drawing boards and say, well, now, what went wrong? And what they decided went wrong was that s the scientific interpretation had been contaminated by pagan belief systems. And that's ultimately what it's all about. And this is, the, this is the only other strategy left. You either capitulate to modern science, you either try to accommodate with endlessly reinterpreting the text, or you interpret the text as it always has been interpreted by Jesus and the apostles and say, okay, this is where I start, I don't understand how it fits together, but somehow over here there is a systematic mistake being made. It's a titanic claim and it's extremely offensive to the intellectual world. This is why today... Creationists are labeled as mambos and jumbos and the, the radical right and all the rest of it. And, and it's really ironic because most of the creationists who I've worked with in debates and so forth are far more educated in the topic than their evolutionary counterparts. And you know why they are? There's a reason for that. Because they've had to live in the world. Many, most of these guys write papers and do everything else. They know very well what the issues are. I remember in graduate school, I used to come back from lunch and the professor was concerned for my scientific soul that I was such a fundamentalist in a graduate school, doing quite well in her classes, and to save my scientific soul, she would open up Science Magazine and put it open to an article against creationism when I came back from lunch. Well, since I knew who in the department subscribed to Science Magazine, I could quickly figure out who it was that was putting this on my desk after lunch period. And I never forget the discussion. We had an honest discussion. She appreciated my view. And I just said that I have examined your position and I find it basically in total conflict with the Christian faith. And you can say what you will, but the only way you can defend your position is to go over to a philosophy of naturalism. And I don't believe in naturalism because I'm a theist. So therefore, and so on. But the point here is, and I want to summarize tonight with this, is that the church has thought deeply about these things for many, many years. The struggle has gone on. This is not an easy one. You can't approach this glibly, and we're not approaching it glibly. All I'm trying to do is show you, as we work with the text, you are reading a text in Genesis that collides in every way with the world around you, in front of you, in back of you, under you, and above you. You are surrounded with a pagan environment that says no to this text. And you as a Christian know in your heart that Jesus Christ says and respects the text, and you live in a world of tension. And that's what this whole thing is about. And as we go into this handout that we are going into next week on the character of God, we're going to start asking ourselves, well, now, wait a minute. From a biblical point of view, what answers do we have here? Hold it. And we're going to show you that there are answers. But we're going to also show you that this is not something you can decide in five minutes. 
the good people have argued about this for centuries. What is happening today is the moment you stand up for the traditional Christian view, you're labeled as some sort of ignoramus, and I resent that. That is a stupid answer. And you have people, particularly NEA and other people, who have this attitude that anytime anybody believes in creation, there's some sort of a Neanderthal. I can take, I'll stand against anybody, math or science, toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose. And I resent being called some sort of a Neanderthal because I don't agree with this official pagan mythology. And we shouldn't either. We don't have to be embarrassed about it. This is opening up a genuine philosophic issue that is extremely important because it goes back to our first question. How did we start the course four weeks ago? Origins controls what? It controls your view of God. That's what's at stake, folks. Don't fool yourself. You can have the intellectual freedom to choose one or the other. But once you have chosen, you've locked in a concept of God that colors everything else you believe. It colors your morals. It colors your ethics. It colors your epistemology. That is how you believe what is true is true. And it colors your entire philosophy of life. You have the freedom to choose. Nobody's cramming it, ramming it, or jamming it. All I'm doing is I'm showing you the choice that is out there. Okay? Father, we thank you for this time together tonight. And we pray that as you lead us further into the Genesis text, you'd impress upon us the depth of your character and some of the magnificent things that you've said in this text. In Christ's name, amen. I have to have a little short Q&A because I promised everybody we'd be consistently out of here at 9 o'clock and I want to keep my promise. Um, so, any questions? Yes? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went to a back in Genesis seminar two years ago at the University of Delaware, and Nick Handegrave was very emphatic that when the word in Hebrew for days is associated with a number, that it means specifically a 24 hour period. Yeah. And I'm curious as to why we aren't more emphatic about the fact that when that word is it's, it's the only word I understand in the Hebrew language when associated with morning or evening or first day, second day, it means specifically 24 hours, and we seem to be reluctant to really emphasize the fact that God was real clear in his word. He wrote in Hebrew and asked the word for 24 hours. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. See, the problem, the problem is that in this area, there is so much intimidation. The politics of intimidation are awesome. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction of this thing that if you... You can sign your death warrant. If you are a graduate student in any of the natural sciences and you dare let it be known to your thesis advisor, dissertation advisor, that you believe this way, they won't fire you because they're worried about a civil rights suit if they do, but they have other ways of getting you, like drying up your fellowship, seeing you don't get research, or your papers never get published in peer-reviewed journals. I mean, there's all kinds of neat ways to get you. And the result is that uh, that's just one example of the massive intimidation that goes on. And so really, on the college campus, the only people that speak out are undergraduate students, because undergraduate students are freer intellectually than graduate students are. And they, they, they have nothing to lose. 
they can't be fired from the campus. Graduate students can be. And a graduate student loses it, he doesn't take his hours from University A to University B usually. So there's a tremendous politics of intimidation. And I think that has a lot to do with it because there's a popularization of angling and worming the way around this. There's no question that days mean days. I mean, there's quotes you could get by, by Hebrew scholars that are, uh, could care less about the argument. The, the liberal Hebrew, uh, Hebrew people, they believe it's literal days. They just believe it's literally wrong, but at least they believe it's literal days. The only people that's, that hit Greece when they hit the word day are evangelicals who are trying to do this number. They're the only people. The only people on the board do that. And uh, it's too bad, but that's the way it is. And I don't know what, uh, you know, uh, we've tried to articulate it. Uh, Ken's right. Ken Ham's right. Absolutely. Very well researched. I mean, this is not a question of a doubt. What Ken told you and Ken Ham told you, and that is absolutely correct. You can go to any reputable Hebrew scholar and he'll tell you the same thing. Oh, yeah. So here we are in one of what I perceive to be a very popular yeah. edition of the Bible, given as erroneous information. Well, what happened in behalf of the Scofield Bible? There are fun the fundamental people who believe uh, in a literal scripture and believe, that because, because he holds to a gap view between Genesis 1 1 1 2. The gap view was promoted before this whole thing got started for another reason. And I want to be clear that there are theological reasons Christians have given for holding the gap independently of its use here. And that position, by the way, none other than John Milton in Paradise Lost holds this position, the gap in Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2. Uh, not because he's worried about evolution, he didn't know about evolution. What happened was that on an independent basis, namely the question of where did Satan fall, that's a theological question. And because of that, there was already in existence the gap view. What happened in Schofield's day was Christians were badly hurt by all this stuff going on. Remember, Schofield wrote just uh, about a decade before the Scopes trial. Keep in mind American history. And at that point, Christians were really reeling from the assaults. And they, they sought some measure. Where can we go to get an answer to this? And there weren't any creationist scientists around to help. So they seized upon the gap view as a, whew, we can get, as a safety valve to relieve the pressure. So that is, explains why the Scofield Bible. Scofield Bible was written in the early 1900s, the first edition. And so there, was, there were reasons for that, and I dare not come down hard uh, on them for doing that. Uh, you know, if we lived in that generation, we might well have done the same thing. It's just that now, after 50 years of arguing about the case, it didn't hold water for very many reasons. Uh, because you can't, if you scrape all the geologic ages back before 1-2, you've got death before 1-2, you've got no break. Now we have hard enough time trying to say that there's a universal flood. Now you've got to have a universal destruction. So now we've got two problems. We've got the destruction between 1-1 and 1-2, then we also have Noah's flood. So now, if we thought we had problems with 1, now we have problems with 2. So a number of reasons why that has not panned out.
in the, in the 20th century. That's at the heart of the controversy of how you interpret Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2, and 1, 3. Those who would say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, would argue that the word heavens and earth there never elsewhere refer to anything but the finished heavens and the finished earth. And, of course, the counter answer to that is, yeah, that's right, but the problem is you're dealing with origin at that point, dealing with T0. None of the texts of heavens and earth deal with T sub 0, so therefore, you can't argue that way. So, yes, in the traditional view, Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, and the fundamentalists today all hold that the, the um, Hashemayim Ha'eretz, the heavens and the earth, at that point in verse 1, refers to unformed material. It's the material out of which the heavens and the earth were created. Because traditionally, those who have interpreted it have done that. We don't have to. But that's the way it's been used. So that's why I'm arguing that way. For apologetic reasons, it really doesn't matter because the, the subsequent operations in day two, day three, day four are so momentous that they still prevent you from harmonizing a literal rendition of Genesis with modern cosmology. So since they do, that the debate over Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2, and 1, 3 is somewhat academic. It's interesting, theologically and academically, but it doesn't become an apologetic panacea. And one thing you want to remember about, because this is a new argument that's being used now to justify the new Jewish translation, the new Catholic translation, and the Protestant translation of 1982, which I can't remember the name of, the argument is that they say this translation, in fact, I, I wrote it down, in the beginning, when God created the chaos, that kind of a that, that sense, they're arguing that that's traditional Middle East, ancient Semitic ways of describing origins. But now, if you open your Genesis text, you'll see where that is used in Genesis, but not at one one. Look over at Genesis two four. That's where you see that structure. You see how it reads in two four. Look at the, after, go through the first clause in verse 4. And you see where it stops. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heavens. See that in the day? That's a Hebrew idiom for when. When the Lord God made heaven and earth. And then in verse 5, now there was at that time no shrub of the field and so forth and so forth. That's the form that you see most ancient Eastern texts. What you don't see outside of the Bible is the structure of Genesis 1.1. You can't show me one ancient text that reads, in the beginning, God created heavens and earth, and then go into the text. That first verse is missing. It is not present any other text. That's unique. Absolutely unique with the Bible. So that's why that 1.1 is very, very important. It's that verse that protects ex nihilo creation. If you don't have that verse in there, you have eternal matter. You could have eternal matter. 
Okay? So that's what the, the argument there is. But the big idea tonight, all I wanted to get across tonight was that there have been, uh, Christians have been trying this thing for two or three hundred years and it just hasn't worked. You can't endlessly reinterpret the Bible. And that's why in the notes I quote on page 15, Dr. Green, who clearly was a good historian of science, taught many years at uh, the University of Louisiana. And look what he says. Now, Dr. Green is not one of us. He's just a very good historian of science. And look at his observation there. Maintenance of what these writers call verbal inspiration is likely to prove possible only by continual reinterpretation of the Bible. And then look at his sentence. In the long run, the perpetual reinterpretation may prove more subversive of the authority of Scripture than would a frank recognition of the limitations of traditional doctrine. What he's arguing there was, look, Forget this endless reinterpretation. Just capitulate. Do what the liberals have done. But don't sit there and try to endlessly reinterpret Genesis. Or said another way, the way I like to say it, if we can't interpret Genesis 1 right, what are we doing interpreting the rest of the Bible? I mean, this is just a simple historical narrative. Now, if we've got this many problems and we can't understand what Genesis 1 is saying, what are we doing with Ezekiel? Revelation. Matthew's Gospel, the Resurrection. I mean, it's a hopeless mess. If, if we're in this bad of shape, that we can't get out of Genesis 1 what God wants us to get out of it, forget it. Throw it out. See? So, the idea there is to expose you to the fact that there, there have been men who have tried, men and, and godly women, who have tried to work this problem out. It's not an easy problem. But what it does show you is that there's... There's big issues at stake. The whole nature of the universe is at stake here. The whole history of the cosmos is at stake. And the nature and being of our God is at stake. Because if you hold to the continuity of being, you will always wind up with a God who is a process and an it. Every time. We just asked right out here in the lobby, a young person, going to school right here in Harford County. And right after class, they said, you know... Every week in biology class, I go round and round my instructor, and he keeps telling me that the DNA of the human being is similar to the DNA of the chimpanzee, etc., etc., by 3 or 4%, blah, 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 blah. And I said, yes, that's correct. And? Well, I mean, the teacher keeps saying that this is evidence of evolution. Why is similarity an evidence of evolution? It is an evidence of evolution if this is so. Now let's go back again to our, to, our, uh, to our presupposition. Let's look at it. Watch it. We're gonna, I told him we're going to get into this deeper later. But look at this. If you start here, if you start with this, that everything is related on a scale, and then I come to you and I tell you, ooh, the chimpanzee and the human being, DNA structures are 97% similar. If you already believe this, then it becomes an argument for transition of one from the other. You see? There's the presuppositional role coming in. But if I don't start here, and instead I start here with a creator creature, how does similarity argue for transformism? doesn't. What it argues for is common design. Ford and GM both put four wheels on cars. Do you know why? Because it's a good physics of automobile mechanics. Now, is it because one evolved from the other? Not really. 
give you a more modern illustration, far more seriousness, if you look at the intelligence shots of the Soviet fighter aircraft, you will see that in the last decade, the Soviet high-speed jet fighters look remarkably like our F-15s. Now, how is it that the Soviets do this? Is it because they're copying the Americans? That's not true. It's because aerodynamic theory drives them to that design. The commonality is not transformism. The commonality is because that's the structure. So, once again, you see the evidence it can't be isolated from the presupposition being used to interpret the evidence. We'll see this again and again and again. That's what's the problem. That's my objection. I'm not asking, like, I got a call this week. You know, listen to this one. This is good. Teenage girl, 17 years old, Harford County again, asked by her, one of her teachers, uh, in two days, would you debate creation evolution, please? With whom? The chemistry teacher. <laughs> now, see, this is the setup. See, let's get the Christian students to look as stupid as possible. Don't keep them any time to prepare. And then let's send them in against a professional. And then we'll have a fair discussion about creation evolution. See, that's the agenda. And that's how Christian students get chewed up all the time. And that's what really ticks me off about the so-called school system and its so-called neutrality. It's no more neutral than a, a barn smells nice. They are interested in destroying the Christian faith. And they will do anything they can to do this. And that's proof of it, right there. The, the, the utter, complete insensitivity to this teenager, putting her on the spot like that. You talk about abuse. That is intellectual abuse of students. They wouldn't even ask an adult for two-day preparation time for debate. But that's what they do in Harford County. She did. Did it today, this afternoon at 1.30. And we were praying for her. She said God gave her the opportunity. She was going to try. And good for her. That girl had guts. Well, they wouldn't be allowed in the school system. The school system can't have, can't have uh, Christians involved. Okay, but that's my point is there's a game, there's an agenda, and we really have to understand the game or we get caught up in it. But you can't agree to a debate. You know what the, oh, by the way, you know what the topic of the debate was? And here, if I had had a chance, I would have coached her never to take this topic on. The topic they gave this teenage girl was should creationism be taught in the public schools? And... I think there's a better question. The better question is, should evolution be taught as it really is in the public schools? Let's have honesty and labor. See, the problem is creationists haven't had time to develop a lot of counter models. You know how much millions of dollars of research it takes to develop a counter worldview? The other side's been having 150 years and they have NSF grants. Name an NSF grant for one of our side. We don't get NSF grants. Dr. Humphreys out at Los Alamos Laboratories worked 13, 15 years in developing that little book that he's now got out. It's a fantastic answer to the starlight problem. Took him 15 years, had to go back, had to learn tensors, had to go through Einstein's whole theory of general relativity on Saturdays and Monday and Tuesday nights at his house because he didn't get any NSF grants. And he finally came out with something that's tremendous. Um, starlight and time. 
by master publishers. And it's one chapter in a forthcoming major book that he's going to produce. It answers the whole question about the starlight issue. And so it's a tremendous step forward in our area. But my point is that that's how this work gets done, folks. It gets done on the side, on Saturdays, in someone's attic, and so on. And that's our tools. And God, you know, we're the lowly people. And we're not going to have the majority. But don't ask 17-year-old schoolgirls to go up against some pro. And by the way, you have two days to prepare for it. So that's, that's not right. And, and, and it, they always want to stack the deck that way to make the Christians look stupid. And we're the, we're the ones that are stupid for, for allowing them to do it to us like that. Of course, when we, de- when we really debate them, then it's, it's unfair. Now we're breaking the separation of church and state, and so forth and so on, when that happens. But Scotchy and Bubba have had cases, haven't you guys, in class? Isn't that common set up? Any, any Christian teachers stand up against a non-Christian teacher? you ever see a debate between a Christian teacher and a non-Christian teacher? No. It's always against the Christian student and the non-Christian teacher. Isn't it interesting how that always happens that way? So, it goes back to the fundamental question. Don't buy into the question. You have a right. They want you for a debate. You have a right to say, excuse me, I think I will debate that question, not that one. Oh, well, we want you to debate that one. Sorry. That's the one I debate. I'm not going to aim the gun at myself and have you pull the trigger. So, those are things to watch, and as we work through this, we'll, we'll see more and more. I did bring one of the uh, books that have been written that you want to be aware of. is Hugh Ross has written a book called Creation and Time, in which he holds to the, the same accommodation strategy. And this is a book that I helped edit uh, answering Dr. Ross. But the real one that you want to get, if you want to get into astronomy, and we'll get into that later, is Dr. Russell Humphreys' Starlight and Time. Okay? That's it.